dwell. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Jesus speaking. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his, stone asks him for, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Would you pray with me? Father, it's... It's easy to approach your word flippantly, to, um, to approach it like it's just any other book, like it just has some, some good information for us. And we don't want to do that this morning. We want to come and humble ourselves before your word because this is you speaking to us. This is you, a living God, addressing your people. And you want to... You want to open our ears and open our eyes and change our hearts and change our lives. And we want to come humbly before your word. We want to be those who tremble before it. And so I ask, Father, even, even now, would you, would you prepare us to hear from your word, prepare us to respond to your word, to prepare us to rejoice in your word? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've, I've mentioned before that in college, when I was in university, I spent two summers in China. And during one of those summers, I climbed a mountain with some of the other guys with me. Not like, don't think Colorado, don't think Everest, but it was a mountain. I mean, I think by that definition. So we climbed this mountain together. And the, the original uh, ascent of this mountain um, was notoriously dangerous because I mean, lots of people went up and down it, so it, you know, there's a way prepared, but it involved like moving, you had to sort of shuffle along this rock face, holding a chain and just standing on these, like this wooden platform, which was, you know, just absolutely terrifying. But by the time we climbed it, they had changed it a little bit. There was a new path, which was basically just 6,000 feet of carved steps that you, you just kept, kept walking on up. And traditionally, the way people climbed this mountain was they would do it at night. And I think that was because you'd be too terrified during the day. Like, you, you, it has to be dark for you to make your way up this mountain without kind of looking over at what you might fall into. So, so we, we wanted to do the tradition, and so we drove out in uh, a car to the town at the base of the mountain. We had dinner, just kind of rested and relaxed. And then as the sun was going down, we started up the mountain, and we just climbed steps. We just climbed and we climbed. And, you know, by the time the sun was rising, we were just kind of dragging each other to just, you, you can't give up here, you know, just follow me. We just, we just dragging each other up to the summit. We made it just in time to watch this unbelievable sunrise 
um, from which we can see not, not just uh, the beauty uh, in every direction, but we can see the path we'd taken up. We can see these things that were, you know, when, when you're climbing in the dark, all you see is the person in front of you and the person behind you and the chains you're holding on to. You get this really limited vision. But from the summit, we can see the whole picture. Now, Matthew 7 verse 12 is one of the peaks of the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the places from which you see not just the beauty of the life God's calling us to, but you can, you can see how the whole picture of the sermon comes together. What Jesus says after this, beginning in verse 13, which we're going to look at next week, is really his conclusion to this unbelievable sermon. So in, in verse 12, he's trying to sum up all that came before. And what he's saying is that this sermon is all about how to live lives of love. He says this, how to, how to live in Jesus' kingdom, how to live in the community of his disciples. So he says that those who trust in Jesus, those who put their faith in him, they enter into his kingdom. And they don't enter his kingdom, they don't earn their way in, they don't present credentials, they come in by grace. That's what he's been saying in the sermons, and he says in chapter 5 that following him will make his followers stand out, make us different from the rest of the world, and that'll make us have an influence, the way salt keeps meat from going bad, the way light drives out darkness. He says that part of what makes us stand out is a deep heart-level righteousness. We won't be content to just not murder, but we won't even want to get angry. We'll turn away from anger. We won't just not commit adultery. We won't even lust. That we won't just love people who are easy to love. We'll love our enemies as well. It's this deep righteousness. He says we in, in chapter 6, he says, we'll stop living for the praise of people. We'll live to please God alone. He says, we won't, we won't live to acquire money. We won't be enslaved to our possessions, but we'll be free from that. Free to give generously. Free to just trust God to provide. And he says that in, in chapter 7, verse 12, he says that what sums all that up is love. The essence of this life that fulfills the law and the prophets is doing to others as you would have them do to you. Jesus wants to make us people of love, a love that can't be found in the world, that only comes from him. But what he, he wants this love, he wants it to happen in real life. Not just theoretical, not just in our minds, but really to love the people around us. And that's why in our passage today, he gives us very practical counsel about how to love. So we're going to see in this passage the call to love, two hindrances to love and the source of love. So if you have a bulletin, you have an outline on the back of it, feel free to use that. First, the call to love, which is, of course, the golden rule that we've already been looking at. So not only is verse 12 one of the peaks of the Sermon on the Mount, it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Look at it again. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And this is, the verse is so familiar that it's easy to overlook how searching it is. And, and people have, have pointed out that this idea of, you know, treat as you want to be treated, this is found in lots of religions, right? Confucius said, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. A famous Jewish teacher, Rabbi Hillel, said, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary. There's something about this baked into our consciences as humans. But Jesus takes it so much deeper because he doesn't say, don't do to someone else what you would not want them to do to you. He says, do to them what you would want them to do to you. If the call is just don't harm people, don't hurt anybody, that's still hard, but it's a lot easier than what Jesus is calling us to. Because we could think, if, if it were the other way, don't do to others what you would have them not do to you, you could think, well, basically, 
I can basically live for myself. And as long as living for myself doesn't trample on anyone else, then I'm fine, right? It just, I can still live for myself. It just gives me kind of boundaries. But what Jesus is saying, he's saying it's not enough just not to wrong anyone. You have to think about what positive good you should do, you would want someone to do for you and then do it for the people in your life. So imagine, imagine that there's someone at work, someone in your office that no one likes, right? No one wants to chat with, no one wants to be on a team with, no one wants to get seated next to you at the holiday party. And, and she's the subject of gossip, cold shoulders, people will just walk right by her in the hall, not even acknowledge that she's there. Jesus is saying it's not enough to just not be part of the gossip and just not be one of the people who ignores her. You have to positively, proactively befriend her and include her. Make her feel valued. Isn't that what you would want someone to do for you if you were in her position? Or you think about the poor in our community. He says it's not just enough, it's not, just enough not to exploit the poor. You have to positively, proactively speak up for them. You have to give sacrificially to them. You have to think about what you would want if you were in their position and do that for them. It's so searching. This is so deep. So with each person in your life, you don't ask, well, how can I live for myself without hurting them? You ask, how can I use what I have to help and do good to them? If I were in their place, what would I want done for me? It's empathy, basically. It's turning away from our self-focus, putting ourselves in other people's shoes and looking to meet their needs. It's loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And Jesus says, if you do that, you'll be fulfilling the law and the prophets. That's his call to us. And if we were like that, if we, in this room, if we were like that, wouldn't we stand out? Wouldn't we stand out at work if we were always going out of our way to consider what most serves those who are hard to love? Wouldn't we stand out as a community if we weren't seeking just to, just to live our lives here without hurting K-Man, but actually seeking to do positive good to the community? Wouldn't people notice a difference when they come here on Sunday mornings, when they visit? If we, if we deeply embrace the golden rule, how do we treat someone we see here on a Sunday morning that we don't recognize? Someone who might be visiting for the very first time. We would think, well, what would I want in that position? If I were in their position, I wouldn't want to stand awkwardly off by myself. I'd want someone to come over and say hello and ask me how I'm doing. I wouldn't want to sit all by myself during the whole service so that people are kind of like, I wonder if there's a smell there. You know, I, I would want someone to come and sit next to me. And so you think about that and you move into it. Jesus is calling us to that kind of love, but there are hindrances to living that way, both to loving other Christians and to loving people who are not Christians. And Jesus wants to address them. And the first hindrance is self-righteous judgment. So he says, Jesus says in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. And now this may be an even more famous verse than the golden rule. People quote this all the time, right? People who aren't even Christians quote this verse. And what they mean basically is everyone's entitled to their own standard of right and wrong. And, and you must not apply your standard to everyone else. So you... If you say that well, someone's choice is wrong or someone's lifestyle is wrong, you're going to hear, hey, whoa. Now, didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest you be judged? It just means like you can't make any evaluations about other people at all. Is that what this means? It can't be. And here's why. If you look, we're going to look in a minute in verses 3 to 5 where Jesus talks about how this responsibility Christians have to help get specks out of other people's eyes by which he means sin in their life that they can't see and can't deal with on their own. 
Now, how could we address sin in each other's lives if we don't make any judgment about what's right or wrong? Or in verse 6, he talks about a group of people he describes as dogs and pigs. And that's, we'll get to that. Okay, that, that will probably pique your interest. We'll get to that. But at the very least, you can see that Jesus is making a judgment, isn't he? And not a real positive one. So he's not saying don't make judgments of right and wrong or good and bad. He's saying don't cast judgment on people. So Christians have to be able to say this is right, this is wrong, this is a good way to live. That's not a good way to live. But we must not put ourselves in the place of God, pretend we have it all together, and then just look down on everyone we think is falling short. It's self-righteous judgment that Jesus forbids. It's pride. It's looking for the flaws in other people so you can feel better about yourself. And this, there was so much of this in my life when I became a Christian, when I first became a Christian, which was in college. I can be a fairly intense person. And so when I, when I became a Christian, I was like all in. I was just like 24-7. I'm always, I have to always have theology with me. I have to always be in the conversation. So if I, if I would find out that like a group from my college ministry, they were going to the movies on Friday night, I'd be like, the movies? when you could be studying Romans and praying for the nations, right? I was not a lot of fun to be around. Um, What was I doing? I was casting judgment. I was looking down on them to make me feel better about myself. I wasn't loving them. I was loving me. And Jesus says, if you do that, if you only see other people's faults, you can look down on them and feel smug, then you're putting yourself actually in danger of the judgment of God. Because what does he say in verses 1 and 2? Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now we will all, all, stand before God one day for judgment. All of us. And God will know everything about us. Every thought Every word spoken, every website visited, every desire indulged, and God will make an assessment. He'll make a judgment. We don't think about that enough. Now, for Christians, that's not something to dread, right? Christians, we already know what the verdict of that day will be. We know that on our own, we're hopelessly guilty, but God's innocent son, Jesus, took our judgment, took our condemnation on the cross and so that trusting, through trusting in him, we can be forgiven and declared innocent on the day of God's judgment. So Paul says in Romans 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If, you, if you've trusted in Jesus, your verdict will be not guilty. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, please consider, please take this seriously, that you will one day stand before God And he will assess your righteousness. And the only righteousness that will pass the test is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we receive through trusting in him. Put your trust in him. Okay, but even even though Christians will not be condemned on that day, we will still be judged. We'll still be assessed for what we've done with what we knew and what we had. And Jesus says that in judging us, God will factor in the standard we used in judging other people. So if you judge people strictly, you're always looking for a flaw, always looking down on people. If you judge strictly, Jesus says God will judge you more strictly. If you judge mercifully, if you are generous, if you assume the best, Jesus says God will judge you more mercifully. We must not judge self-righteously. There's a way of judging people 
that pushes them away and keeps them down. And there's a way of judging people that brings them in and lifts them up. A way that says, I can see something in your life and I want to help you with it. Not, I can see something in your life and now I know how much better than you I am. We don't see the problems in their lives and condemn them. We see the problems in their lives and we help. And Jesus describes this process as being like removing a speck from someone's eye. So Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter, right? So Jesus is no stranger to the experience of having a little bit of sawdust fly into your eye, right? You guys can all imagine what that's like. It's painful. You're blinking, tearing. And, and this is the age, like Jesus did not grow up rich. He, didn't, he couldn't run into the house and look in the mirror. He couldn't get that out on his own. If he got something in his eye, he would have to ask for help. He'd have to ask his dad, I got, I got this thing in my eye. Can you please come help get this speck out of my eye? So Jesus describes sin in our life as a speck in our eye to make the point that we can't get it out on our own. We can't see it. We need someone else's help. And, and further, many people think he uses this example of the eye because the eye is so fragile, right? If you, you get like a splinter in your arm, you just pull that thing out, right? But if you, something is in your eye and you have someone coming at you, you don't want them to dig it out with a, you know, a crowbar. You want them to get in there, you know, wash their hands, get in there gently, get that thing as carefully as they can. And that's how sin in our life is. You want someone to come gently. You don't want them to, to come and say, um, you have this problem, and it's horrible, and you just need to get your act together. Come, don't, don't show your face around here again until you are complete. What you want is someone to say, I love you, and I'm concerned about you, and I'm not sure if you see this thing, but it's a problem, and I want to help you. And you can't do that if you're self-righteous. So Jesus gives us this hilarious picture of what a self-righteous person is like in trying to help someone else. He says it's like trying to come help them get the speck out of their eye, and you have a log in your eye, like there's a bit of sawdust in their eye, and you have this beam protruding from your face, and you're like, hey, can, I, can he, you want me to help you get that? And you're like, I do not think that I would like your help. You can see less than I can. I think I would just rather keep the speck, right? That's, that's how a self-righteous person approaches it. They, they see this little thing in someone else's life, but they have this massive thing that they can't see, His point is the only people who can help others with their sin are the ones who are consistently dealing with their own. You have to see your sin as a greater problem than their sin, that they have a speck and you have a beam. You have to repent and seek God's forgiveness, and then you can approach them rightly. So, like, who do you want to come to you when you have something in your life that you're stuck in sin, you can't see it, you can't get out? Do you want someone to come to you and say, I can't believe you. I would never do this. What is wrong with you? Or do you want someone to come to you and say, I want you to know that even though I don't struggle with this the way you do, I struggle with pride, which is way worse, and we both need Jesus. Or you want someone to come to you and say, I want you to know that even though I haven't crossed the line you've crossed, I've thought it. I've done it in my imagination. I've offended God that way. We are, we are just the same. I might have done it if I'd been in the situation you were in, and I want to help you. You don't want a judge in that moment. You want a fellow struggler, someone who knows they're not perfect, but they're moving in the same direction you want to go. You want empathy. Now, we all have things in our lives that are not what God wants them to be, and we can't help other people repent and ask God's forgiveness if we're not regularly repenting and asking his forgiveness first. We can't help them with their little speck until we deal with our log. And there's a sweet spot here we have to find, because we can go wrong in two directions, right? We, 
We can go run in one direction by seeing people's sins and flaws and looking down on them, going after their speck, even though we have a log in our eye. But we can also go wrong in the other direction, seeing their speck and just thinking, well, it's not really my place. Or, well, I'm not perfect either, so who am I to judge? Or, I, I don't want to offend them. I'm sure they'll see it eventually. And that's not love either, because there are things in my life that I can't see. And there are things in your life that you can't see, that you might never see if someone doesn't come to you and show them to you. The defensive tone you take when someone gives you constructive feedback. How much time and money goes into your appearance. How often you make decisions out of fear. How bitter you've grown over past hurts. We need, we need each other to see our specs and love us enough to come humbly without self-righteousness. Self-righteous judgment is the first hindrance to love. And the second is insensitive outreach. So we don't just fail in love towards other Christians, towards our brothers and sisters. We can fail towards those who aren't Christians. And that's what verse 6 is about. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So what's going on here? First, we need to get this picture clear, right? Um, so he's, he's saying dogs and pigs, they're animals. They have no use for anything that's not food. If you give your treasure to a dog or a pig, you, you give your pearls to a pig, a pig is not going to be honored and think, well, I don't really have any use for this, but it was so thoughtful of you, and I just, I really feel loved by the pearls. They're going to try to eat them. It's going to hurt their teeth or get caught in their throat, and they're going to they're spit it out, trample it underfoot, and they're going to come at you, right? They, they have no use for those holy things. So, so you're like, oh, I guess that's good advice. Like, I'll keep that in mind when I'm with pigs. But what, like, what is, what is this about? It's a word picture. So who are these dogs and pigs, and what is this holy pearl we're not supposed to throw to them? Well, Jesus tells this parable later in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. So the pearl is, is the, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's the treasure of knowing God. It's the good news about how we can be brought into a love relationship with the God who made you, not through what you've done, but through his grace and forgiveness. And part of being a disciple of Jesus is you don't just find this pearl, but you, you pass it on. You tell other people how they can know this God, that they are in danger of judgment, that they can be forgiven through trusting in him. We pass on the pearl. And so to throw your pearl to the pigs is to try to give the gospel to people that think they have no use for it, that they're just antagonistic and contemptuous. They just want to have an argument. You're just, you're trying to help them see that they're under God's judgment, they need his forgiveness, and they just want to argue about evolution or slavery or all the terrible things Christians have done in history. And the more you try to make your point, the angrier they get with you. And Jesus just, he says, just stop. Stop throwing your pearl to them. And that, that might sound harsh, right? But it's actually an act of love because if they're not ready to hear the gospel humbly, to really take it to heart, if they're just looking for an argument, then you pushing them is just going to make them more resistant to the gospel. It's going to, it's just going to, they're going to double down. They're going to entrench themselves. They're going to listen even less than they have been. And it might ruin the relationship so that when they soften up, when they're ready, you might not be the person they come to. They, they might have, have cut you loose from their life. And so it's, evangelism, it's not about dropping truth bombs on people and then just patting yourself on the back because you've ticked the box. It's about getting to know people, where they are in relation to God, and what the right next step is to help them along the way. 
Now, I, I had a neighbor a few years back that he had grown up in church and he had had a bad experience. And, and I, I got to, as I started to get to know him, I, we were friendly, we would chat, but I had a, a clear sense that he did not want to talk about Jesus. And so for a year, for a year, we would just kind of bump into each other and chat about work and just get to know each other, just grow as friends. And then something happened in his life that was really, really difficult for him, a crisis. And he texted me and said, this thing is happening. Can you please pray? And I said, I will. Can I come see you? And we got together and we were able to read the Bible together over a course of a few weeks, not the whole Bible, but we read the Bible together. And he started coming to church and he was, he was open in a new way a way that he hadn't been before. And if I'd pushed him hard at the beginning, if I just tried to check the box, I might not have been the person he reached out to when he was ready to talk. Now, it's possible to use this to excuse yourself from the awkwardness of talking to your friends and family about Jesus. You could just say, kind of blanket, I don't think anybody I know is ready to hear about this. I'll just wait until somebody comes to me and says, you know, I've begun to fear that I'm going to fall under the judgment of God. Do you know how I can have peace with him? And then I'll go away and do that. And that is probably not going to happen. You have to take initiative with people. You have to start conversations. But if it seems that those conversations are just leading to frustration and anger and contempt, it's okay to just take a break and just wait and watch and pray. That's a way to treat them the way you would want to be treated. This is what the golden rule looks like in real life. Part of loving other Christians is helping one another see the sin in our lives and turn from it. Part Part of loving those who aren't Christians is telling them the good news about Jesus. But we have to do it the way we'd want to have it done to us. We don't go to people with a log in our eye. We come humbly. We don't just push people and try to force them to make a decision. We, we do it sensitively and gently. And if we're going to love like that, we need to see, finally, the source of love. Your generous Father. Now, Jesus never wants us to think of the Christian life as something we just muster up and do for him. Before Christianity is something we do for God, it's something he does in us. The life described in the Sermon on the Mount is beyond us. We can't root out all the anger and the lust in our hearts. We can't just stop wanting the approval of people or worrying about money. We can't just summon the courage to go have a hard conversation with someone about something in their life or about the gospel. We need God. And God wants us to know that he's eager to help. So look at verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him. He says, ask. If you need something, if you're not up to the challenge, if, if, you, if you're laboring under a, a sense of your own guilt and need forgiveness, ask and it will be given to you. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He says, everyone who asks receives. He says, God's your father. He wants to do good for you. I mean, any one of us who's a parent, we want to do good for our kids. We don't play nasty tricks on them. We wouldn't give them a snake if they, if they wanted a fish, right? We, we're, like, we're, we're not great people, but we're okay parents. And, and Jesus says, if you who are evil know that much, how much more will your father in heaven, a perfect father, won't he give you what's good? Think how much better he is than you and ask. Now, don't think 
please don't think that this means that God, this isn't God writing a blank check. This doesn't mean, please don't think this means that God is obligated to say yes to every prayer. And if you think about that for a minute, you'll be glad he doesn't, right? One, one scholar, Alec Matir said, if it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again. It's too much pressure, right? We don't know what we need. I mean, think of, think of every story you know about the granting of wishes. Doesn't it always end horribly? Don't, it always backfires because you don't know what you need. We don't want a God who gives us what we ask. We want a God who gives us what's good. And that's what he promises. That's what he promises. So this should give you incredible freedom in prayer. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are God's child. He is eager to hear from you and eager to give you good things. And it should give you perseverance in prayer. Because you can know that if you've asked and you've asked and you've asked and nothing has happened, then whatever the reason is God's not answering, it isn't because he doesn't love you. It isn't because he doesn't want to give you what's good. It may just be that he's teaching you to persist. His gifts are good and so is his timing. God is calling us to a love that's beyond us, a love that treats others the way we want to be treated. But he also gives us the gift of prayer so that whatever we lack, whatever we need, we can come to him for. He is the source of love. He's a fountain of love that never runs dry. Now, it's, it's a complex portrait of God that Jesus paints in this passage, isn't it? On the one hand, he's our judge. On the other hand, he's our father. And we can't live out this passage until we see where those two roles meet. So on the one hand, God is a righteous judge. He can't treat sin lightly. He can't let it go unpunished. He's just. On the other hand, he loves sinners and longs to receive them as his children. He has to punish sin, but he doesn't want to punish us. So what does he do? How can he show both perfect justice and complete love? Through the cross. Through the cross. At the cross, he really punished sin. He executed a death sentence. He didn't take sin lightly, but he didn't punish us. His son took the stroke of justice. And so he satisfied his justice and he satisfied his love because now every sinner who trusts in Jesus becomes his child and can come to him anytime. So when you see, when you see that you're so flawed that your sin cost God's son his life, it will obliterate self-righteousness and pride. Because what do you have to be proud of? It'll enable you to approach other sinners with humility. And when you see that God loves you so much that he gladly gave his son for you, you'll have mercy for others and confidence towards God in prayer. And if we can hold those things together, and if we can get there together as a church, we'll become a community of love that will have an eternal impact on Cayman. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we, celebrate, we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate you. We celebrate that when we were dead, when we were lost, when we were helpless, that in mercy and compassion, you came from heaven to rescue us and not just to rescue us at the cost of your convenience, but to rescue us at the cost of your life. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that that good news has power in our lives, that it shapes us. It doesn't just secure us for eternity, but it shapes us now to become people of love and a community of love. And I pray that you would humble us, 
that we would, that we would approach any other sinner from below, from humility, being more aware of our sin than theirs so that we could really love them and treat them the way we want to be treated. And I pray that as we face outward, as we, as we see our neighbors and our family and our coworkers, the people who don't know you, that we wouldn't come to them judgmentally, but we would come to them looking to serve, looking to speak life, looking to draw them into the beauty of, of knowing you. And so please, God, we don't have the wisdom for this. We don't, we don't have the love for this. And so we ask that you would give it. You're so generous and good. Give us what you know that we need to live the life you're calling us to. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.